Father in heaven, truly, as we've sung, there is no one on earth that deserves the, the praises that we offer up. We offer up to you our praises. We offer up to you our lives. Because you have saved us. You've made a way for us to approach your holy throne. Through the blood of your son, your only son. Lord, receive our offerings. Frail and finite as they may be. Imperfect. But yet because of your son, you accept them as a holy offering. Thank you, Lord. May you lead us into your truth as we continue in worship through your word. May you show us more of your, your, your glory and your love towards us. May you show us the greatness of your salvation. May you show us the greatness and glory of Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Numbers this morning. Numbers chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Numbers chapter 8. Well, uh, <clears throat> today is uh, Halloween, if you hadn't, didn't know, uh, and so uh, uh, happy uh, Halloween to you, or happy All Hallows Eve to you, for those of you who are Christians, uh, <laughs> or at least uh, who may know it as that Christian holiday. Surprising to most people, maybe you, don't, you may not know, you probably, most look at this room, you probably know, but just in case you didn't know, uh, Halloween actually started as a Christian holiday. You guys know that? It's a Christian holiday. Uh, it was actually called All Hallows Eve. And it really depends. In America, we're, we're just totally unaware of it. But if you come from a lot of other countries in the world, they still celebrate All Hallows Eve. And, and actually, the several days around surrounding this, uh, this day, uh, really the, the central day is tomorrow. Uh, that's All Saints Day. All Saints Day. And, and on All Hallows Day, uh, or All Saints Day, on uh, November 1st, that's why this is All Hallows Eve, it's the evening before the, the All Hallows Day. All Hallows Day was a day that was significant throughout uh, uh, the history of uh, Christian church, primarily Western Christianity, but where Christians would remember uh, the, the Christian martyrs, who, and, as well as some, and as well as the Christian saints who had died uh, in, and uh, were no longer with us. It is not a common tradition, as many of you well, are probably not aware among evangelical Christians today, but it is quite common among Roman Catholic and some of the Orthodox traditions, some of the more Reformed, uh, Reformed traditions, and, and m- many of the mainline denominations. So it has, at, there was, at one point then, you think about mainline denominations based being older churches, at one point historically in the, among Christendom, it was a day that was celebrated by m- most Christians. And there is, though, as you think about that day, All Hallows Day, there is some wisdom, there's some practical wisdom in remembering uh, those uh, believers who came before us, right? 
uh, just as maybe in this, think about this past year of the saints, the believers in your life that you've come to know that have passed on, have gone to be with the Lord. And I know that uh, there's a lot of significance for many of us who know those who died to remember them and remember their life, remember how they lived, remember how uh, they lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's something about their faith that we reflect upon that encourages us. And that they, when they died, though there's sorrow, it is a, it's a, it's, it was a bring, it was a completion to the journey that they lived while on earth. They finished the race that they ran, and there's a great encouragement to that for those of us who still are running the race, those who are still wandering as aliens and strangers in a in a world that is, does not belong to us, that is not our home. And uh, we, I'm not advocating that we all start celebrating All Hallows Day, but. Uh, Perhaps today, on All Hallows' Eve, as the world celebrates <laughs> spooky things and, and dead things and whatnot and uh, costumes, that we as Christians would remember uh, those who've died, those faithful who have died before us, who've gone before us, and that we live in light of, uh, of, uh, of their lives. In fact, that's what Hebrews 11, in fact, advocates, right? The great hall of faith, uh, where it encourages us to the, the many people who walk by faith who went before the, us, and by remembering them, that, that cloud of witnesses, that, that previous generation of Christians, encourages the faith of present-day Christians. And in a, in a very similar way, that is the purpose of Numbers chapter 8. In fact, it's the purpose of Numbers, really, as a, as a whole as well. As the author of Numbers goes back to the first day of the first month of the second year of ex, of, since the Exodus, it is a significant day. It marks a significant day in the Israel's history because it is a day that the, the tabernacle was completed. It was the beginning, really, of Israel's formal sacrificial worship of the Lord. Uh, it is a day where the tabernacle was completed, the priests were consecrated, and from that point on, offerings were made to the Lord, and at that point on, the glory of the Lord no longer dwelt outside the camp, but now dwelt inside the camp of Israel. God dwelt among the people of God. Now, here in this passage in Numbers chapter 8, this event, uh, this day was already recorded for us back in Exodus chapter 40, and we see all the details there. But here in chapter 7 to 8 of, our, of, our, uh, of Numbers, all that takes place on this day, all that is set up, the tabernacle, of all the things that took place, the Lord now focuses in these two chapters on just a few things, three things really, but uh, several things you might simply say. And these, these several things are mentioned here, almost review, uh, but they're reminders of what took place that day. And for the most part, there are matters that were not emphasized or not even recorded in Exodus or Leviticus, but are found here. And the interesting details of, uh, that are found in chapter 7, which we looked at last week, as well as chapter 8 today, they serve a purpose uh, they serve a purpose in reminding Israel of how they began, uh, at least one month earlier. For the second generation who would uh, read this book uh, after, uh, as, on the, uh, as they were about ready to enter the promised land, it would have been 40 years later. Uh, for every generation that has since, for us today, it's some uh, 3,400 years later. But it still reminds us of the beginnings of uh, the formal worship of the Lord uh, that took place, uh, that worship, uh, the worship rituals that, that all point to us, of, to really point to us of Jesus. 
Chapter 7 detailed the dedication offering, and chapter 8 now describes two instructions regarding Israel's worship. They are instructions regarding a lamp, or well, technically a lamp stand. Sometimes we just call it a lamp, but a lamp stand. And secondly, the Levites, the Levites. Uh, its record here serves to remind us then of the future generations of Israel, of the beginnings of God's dwelling among them, and their worship of the Lord, and its significance upon their lives. These, proper, uh, these instructions are, are uh, for the proper worship then that we're going to study today. Uh, remind God's people of fundamental truths. They're, they bring us back to the beginning and say, they're reminding us of fundamental truths, basic truths, essential truths of their relationship with the Lord. And so we're going to look today at basically simply two points. Um, but we're going to look at the lampstand, the Levites, and our relationship with the Lord. What they teach us about the, our relationship with the Lord. Okay, so let's take a look then at this chapter of Numbers chapter 8, and uh, hopefully it will be an encouraging to us as we walk and worship the Lord today. First in verses 1 to 4, we see the instructions regarding the lampstand, the lampstand. Let's read verses 1 to 4 of chapter 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you mount the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in the front of the lampstand. Aaron therefore did so. He mounted its lamps in the front of the lampstand, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. It's a, if we, um, four short verses, but uh, there's great significance in these four short verse, verses. Back in Exodus 25 to 30, the Lord had, remember, had given instructions uh, to Moses for building the, the holy objects that would be placed in the tabernacle. And I just remembered, oh, I wish I'd put the picture up there. I'd put it up there before in the past uh, second service. We'll get that. Anyways, uh, they, they placed these uh, objects in the tabernacle. And they were, uh, in chapter 25, it talked about, described the building of the Ark of the Covenant the table of showbread, the lampstand. In chapter 27, it spoke of the building of the bronze altar. In chapter 30, it described the, the details of the altar of incense and the, the laver, that is, the, the basin uh, of bronze. But now that the tabernacle and all its holy objects have been built and consecrated, then, and placed in the temple, in the, excuse me, the tabernacle, uh, these, then the daily worship of the Lord uh, could commence, and that was the, that was the beginning, the commencement of that worship, and it's uh, and for you and I today, we might not even think much about it, but there was a, a certain pattern, a, a daily worship that was involved in the worship of the Lord. In fact, every morning and every night, or every technically twilight, the the time between uh, daytime and the evening, that kind of that uh, right before the evening, every day, every morning, every twilight, three things would continually uh, take place as part of Israel's worship. Uh, every morning and every twilight, and those three things were number one, they would the the priests would offer a lamb as a burnt offering on the bronze altar that that was in the outer court. Uh, they would offer this lamb, and this is according to Exodus 29:38. It would, by that offering of this lamb as a burnt offering, it would remind uh, Israel of the need of, of the sacrifice of a life. It's at the very be- open, uh, the very entrance to the tent of meeting. So it always reminds, before you can come to worship the Lord, there needs to be a sacrifice of an animal. That's just what it would do every day, every morning, every night. Uh, 
Secondly, uh, 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 as part of Israel's worship on a daily worship, is that they would, once the, the, the priests, they would go into the holy place inside the tent of meeting, they would burn incense on the altar of incense. They burn incense. Uh, it was, the altar incense was right outside the, the veil that would divide the holy place, the most holy place from the holy of holies on the inside where the Ark of the Covenant was. And the, the incense was significant because the incense that was burned would symbolize the prayers of God's people, the prayers offered up to the Lord. Then thirdly, of, of the Israel's daily worship every morning and every night, the third thing that we mentioned that would that have to take place was that the lamps of the lampstand would need to be trimmed. Sometimes we speak of the lamps, or the lamp, but technically it was a lampstand. Uh, Hebrew is menorah. That's where, that's where you may know the English, our word menorah. And it would be have this menorah, this lampstand would have seven lamps on it, seven lights that would need to be trimmed and lit re, and, and prov- added more oil or trimmed the, uh, uh, the, the wick so that it would continue to burn inside the holy place. We actually read about this in Exodus 30, verse 7 to 8. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Speaking about the burning of the incense. But, and he shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So what was mentioned, it's, a, it's almost mentioned as a, as a kind of a side, as, um, uh, on the side here, it's ne- that the trimming of the lamps is now given focus here in Numbers chapter 8. It's focused upon. Think about it. You're not, uh, of all the holy objects of the tabernacle, only the lampstand is mentioned. And that's significant, right? Why is the lampstand mentioned? Why not, if you think about the holiest object in the tabernacle, what would it be? The Ark of the Covenant, right? Maybe you would say the mercy seat that, was on, that capped the Ark of the Covenant inside the holiest place. You wouldn't think about any other objects, but the lampstand is emphasized here. Uh, and there... Uh, in the text, there is no explanation for why this, holy ob- this particular holy object is brought to Israel's attention at this point. But the fact that it is here tells us or indicates to us that the Lord wants Israel to remember the significance of the lampstand. There's some significance to this thing, this lampstand, that he wants Israel to remember. If we want details of the lampstand's design or its oil or its construction, we can find it in Exodus 25, chapter, Exodus 27, as well as Exodus 37. But what seems to be emphasized in these four short verses is three things. Who is responsible for the lamp, the direction of the lamps, and the material of the lampstand. And each of these points, uh, each of these uh, three kind of observations point uh, to the lampstand as being a symbol then, a pointer to, a reminder of the Lord himself. As for, first of all, the who is responsible for the lamb, uh, you just look at the text, and it's, it's uh, the one responsible is Aaron. Moses, you are to speak to Aaron. Aaron is to do this. Aaron, therefore, did this. Uh, this continues the simply, and the fact that Aaron does all this as God commands, it shows this, this continual kind of like this thread of a, of a major theme within the book of Numbers, that is the need for faithfulness, the need for obedience of God's people. There's something that should mark God's people all throughout their lives. Not that they do it perfectly, but that there is to be faithfulness in our lives, obedience in our lives, right? That, that should mark the believer, 
and that marks, it should mark the, the, the believers in that day. The fact, though, that Aaron is responsible for this lampstand, he's the one put in charge of it, he's so delighted to continually, is, reminds us then, even as this is later on, he's going to speak to the Levites, the fact that he speaks to Aaron here reminds us of him and his role as a priest, and all his sons would be priests. It reminds us of the mediatorial role of the priests, that these pre- in order for the lampstand to be lit, it required someone to light it. And no average person could light it. Not even a Levite could light it. Only Aaron and his sons could light it. Someone had to light it for Israel. Now, that's, we'll leave it right, right there. So there's this mediatorial role. So there's something significant about this lamp and the lampstand that requires someone to, to do the work. The priest. As for the direction of the lamp, we see that emphasized in verse 2 to 3. Where this lamp is, and this guy, he was reading like, oh, you don't even think twice about it. But it's of all the details about the lamp that are emphasized here, it, it's, it's just from the wording. You can see that it talks about where this light is, the lamp, the lamp is to shine its light. When you mount the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in front of the lampstand. Not the back, not the side, but in front of the lampstand. And therefore he said, did so, he mounted the lamps at the front of the lampstand. So somehow they could mount the lamps on the lampstand so that it would shine its light forward in front of whatever was in front of the lampstand. So that's, that's emphasized here. It's just, it's, it stands out. From Exodus chapter 26, verse 35, we learn that outside the Holy of Holies, in the most holy place, were three things. We talked about the altar of incense right outside the veil. But on the north side of, of the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, sorry, would be uh, the table of showbread, where 12 loaves of bread would be placed uh, on the north side. Opposite on the south side of that holy place would be then this object, the lampstand. And so with the lampstand placed on the south side, shining its light forward, what does it shine its light on? The table of showbread, okay? That's table of showbread. And, uh, and, and so those 12 showbreads, why does it shine light on the 12 showbread or the, or the the table of the showbread and the, 12, the bread. Remember, there are 12 loaves of bread. Uh, you don't remember. We didn't, we didn't go through Leviticus but, and Exodus. But there are 12 loaves of bread on there, each symbolizing one of the tribes of Israel. It reminds the... the and it, it's called the table... Sometimes called the table of the presence because it reminds us constantly that the loaves of bread symbolizing Israel are constantly in the presence of the Lord. What an encouragement... To, be, to know that as a very symbolic, a ritual kind of way, that every week when those breads are, bread is replaced on the Sabbath, it's a reminder to Israel that you are always in the presence of the Lord. You are always before him. You're, you're always, and the light shining on it emphasizes that, right? So there's a, the emphasis of that. As the lamps shine upon the showbread, it's, a, it's then a picture of even of the Lord shining his light upon his people. In fact, the Hebrew verb translated to give light or shine is the same one used back in chapter 6, verse 25 of the, of the priestly blessing. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Or you can translate, the Lord give his light upon you. The Lord, and that's not a blessing that would just happen. To the Lord, that's a blessing that happens and continues to happen for the people of God, the chosen nation of Israel. So this lampstand shining its light is a symbol of God's light that is shining upon Israel, his blessing upon Israel, his graciousness and favor that he shows to Israel. 
Lastly, the material of the land, verse 4, oh. is uh, the lampstand, we are told, it was made of, uh, the material is made of pure gold. It's hammered to its shape. Um, and these are just all, these are details that we kind of wouldn't think too much about it when we read the, uh, when we read through the books. But the, first of all, it was a, it was a beautiful uh, a piece of craftsmanship. The base of the lampstand, the, the shaft of the lampstand, the branches of the lampstand, the cups of the lampstand, the bulbs of the lampstand, the flowers of the lamp, the lamps, the snuffers, the trays, all that was involved with this lampstand, all were made of hammered work of pure gold. Quite significant. You've ever seen any works of gold, pure gold? Uh, you know, it's pretty cool just seeing a big bar of gold. Can you imagine artwork? And we have, some of us have little rings or something like that we might wear, or you might see a, a necklace that is made of pure gold. And it's just amazing that that's made in that way. But here, this is by hand, these, this whole lampstand was hammered out, put together, so that the whole thing was made of solid gold. Exodus 37, 24 tells us that all the gold used to make the lampstand was, was weighed a talent of pure gold. And that's about 75 pounds, 75 pound lampstand, wow. Now, the lampstand, the material of the lampstand is significant because it was different from all the other holy objects. Now, all the other holy objects were made either of bronze or they were made of acacia wood that was then covered or plated with gold. This, of all the holy objects, this alone, this, uh, this lampstand was made of pure gold. It's not, you know, it could have made maybe the, the handle or the different branches. It could have made it wooden plated with gold too. But God instructed him to make the lampstand of pure gold. There was one only, there's only, actually, technically, there's one other object in the tabernacle that was made of pure gold, solid gold. Do you know what that is? The mercy seat. The mercy seat where the two cherubim with their wings outstretched which sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And what's significant about the mercy? Because that's where God's presence dwells. For, and if you look at the tabernacle, you ever study it? There's, the material increasingly gets from, goes from, starts from bronze, for the, the bronze altar. And then there's the, a bronze laver, outs, all on the out, external court. And then when you go inside, you start seeing things that are acacia wood, plated with gold, except the lampstand has pure gold. And then inside the Ark of the Covenant is the Ark of the Covenant, which is uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant is that Mercy seat of pure gold, because we're, as the closer it draws to the Lord, the, the greater value. And the lampstand being of gold uh, is a hint or clue that this is symbolic of God. All this, and I, you know, I know many of you guys probably say, well, that, you probably would accept that already. But it's just, it's just neat to see how God intends his rituals, all the descriptions of what he describes, to have a purpose we may not always understand it, and even with it, we, we might not always have 100% certainty of it because it's just, it's, it's just implied, by the, uh, it's implied by the word, and it's not explained. So this is, that's, what, that's why it was made of gold, because it's, it's symbolic of God. So the significance of this lampstand? Of course, on a practical level, it's significant because you think about it, in the most holy place, it's, there's no windows, it's, it's just surrounded by curtains. There's no light in there. If you're going to go in and light the, if you're going to burn the incense or, uh, or um, uh, change the showbread, you need light. And the lampstand practically gives light, so that's practically true. And that's useful. But on a very ritual level or symbolic level, uh, 
the details in these four verses remind Israel of the Lord's light upon them, the Lord's face shining upon them. As they headed, and as the Israelites were preparing to head towards the promised land, they're all ready to march forward. God's people needed to remember that God has promised and God continues to bless and show his favor upon his people. He is the source of light. Some believe even the menorah itself, because it's shaped like a tree, is symbolic of that he's the source of their life as well, because of just like a tree of life. But the wonderful reality, not only is that true for Israel, but it's true for God's people today, that God continues to bless, does he not? And he continues to show favor to his people. You know, it's just, the, we think about it, God has shown us some great favor, God's great blessing by giving us Jesus Christ, right? How, if we have received Jesus Christ, are we going to say, well, God's going to hold back some of the other really good stuff from me? He's already given me something. No, he's not, he already given you his son. What else that is good that he will not hold from you? He will not withhold from you. He will give it all. He will continue to bless us, continue to shine his light, continue to give wisdom, continue to give strength, continue to be, give us his, to, to have us in his presence. And the Lord blesses us with his light. For in fact, but, and we, and we are, need no lampstand to remind us of this truth. For we have a better lamp, the lamp of Jesus Christ. John 8, 12, uh, we see the significance when Jesus spoke again and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus is our lamp. Jesus is our light. We don't need a building. We have the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus shines forth the light, the light of God to all the world when he came. So that whoever believes and follows him no longer walks in darkness, but walks in light. A light, the light of life. And as God's people today, we need to remember this truth. We need to remember that God's light continually shines on us through Jesus. It encourages us to be faithful when we remember this, that God is shining his light upon us. As we wander as aliens and strangers in this land. Throughout our world, throughout walking in this land, there are going to be many times and many uh, circumstances that will tempt us as the people of God to fall away, to not be faithful. It happened to Israel. It will happen to us. It's probably already happened to many of you as well. You don't believe it. Just wait. Just wait. There will be a time. In fact, there's many times. And we need in those times to remember that the Lord's light has shined upon us and he continues to shine his face upon us and he will continue to watch over us and be with us. And in in, in therefore, uh, in our worship of him, in our, let us rem- he reminds us of our calling to be faithful to him. There's a connection between the fact that he shined his light upon us that we then have a re- responsibility and task to shine light to the world. 1 Peter 2, 9, being a chosen race, holy, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him that has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're to worship the Lord in light of the fact that we've received his light. For Ephesians 5, 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We're to walk in a way that reflects the light that has been shined upon us. Because the light has been shi- the Lord has shined His light upon us, so we worship and we walk so that we may reflect the light of the Lord 
of the Lord to the world. And so that's, uh, that's, what we can, that's a fundamental a truth, and even as we learn from, uh, from these, the, lamps, the instructions regarding the lampstand. The second instruction that reminds God's people of the relationship with the Lord is found in the bulk of the rest of the chapter, verses 5 to 26, and that's instructions regarding the Levites. The Levites. In contrast to the priests, the Levites were the less prominent, uh, but nevertheless uh, played a vital role in the worship of the Lord. They were not the priests. They, they were not the ones who actually offered the sacrifices. They were not the ones who would go into the holy, uh, the holy place or even in place of, or like the high priest would go into the holy of holies. They would serve... Uh, in the, in the outer court of the, tent, in, of the tent of meeting, or even a surrounding the tent of meeting. But nevertheless, their service of the Lord in the worship of the Lord was significant. Several details we find in this passage that remind us of the significance of them and regarding the role of the Levites in worship. And we can observe five details. I want to point out just quickly, kind of try to go work through these five details. First of all, we observe the first detail of the cleansing of the Levites. There's a, there's a cleansing involved for the Levites to serve the Lord. Verse 5 to 7, again the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the sons of Israel and cleanse them that you shall do to them for their cleansing, sprinkle purifying water on them and let them use a razor over their whole body and wash their clothes and they will be clean. Now before the Levites could serve the Lord, they had to be cleansed, they had to be ritually cleansed. It wasn't necessarily that they had to take a bath in that sense that because they were like physically unclean, but they were, uh, there was, there's a ritual uncleanness reflecting their, the actual spiritual uncleanness as sinners, as those who are fallen in, have a fallen nature, but they had to be ritually clean, cleansed. And this involved several things, involved first of all, the sprinkling of purifying water on them. There was a, a sprinkling of water. Then it involved, secondly, shaving all their hair off, now their whole body, it says, Wow. And thirdly, then, involved the washing of their clothes. The shaving of hair, uh, the hair recalls even the purification process of the Nazarite. So this was not uh, in chapters, uh, Numbers chapter 6, so not unusual. Washing clothes was also not unusual. It was common for many of the purification rituals found in Exodus and Leviticus uh, for those who were unclean for various reasons. So this cleansing, then, reminds Israel that those who serve the Lord require or necessitate a cleansing that, uh, or a certain level of, of holiness, a certain cleansing that is required in, in order for them to serve the Lord. The fact that the Levites are cleansed and the average layperson is not cleansed in this way uh, did not mean that the average Israelite didn't have to be uh, to, to live a certain holy life as well. But the Levites really were an example. They were representatives, as we'll see in a little bit. An example to the Israelites of the kind of nation, a, a holy nation, that they were to be. Most importantly, this kind of holiness could not be, of course, could not be accomplished by their own efforts. It couldn't be something that they could just, that they could just buy, oh, make sure you live a holy life. It actually comes from the Lord himself, as we'll see. So there needs to be a cleansing, a cleansing that reminds Israel that their own need for a cleansing in their lives. Secondly, the, the Levites, so we, in verse 8 to 14, we, we notice their, the consecrating of the Levites. That the consecrating in the sense of being set apart, being set uh, apart for a particular use. 
Verse 8 through 14, a long section here. Let's read it. Then let them take a bowl with its grain offering, fine flour mixed with oil, and a second bowl you shall take for a sin offering. So you shall present the Levites before the tent of meeting. You shall also assemble the whole congregation of the sons of Israel and present the Levites before the Lord, and the sons of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Aaron then shall present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the sons of Israel, that they may qualify to perform the service of the Lord. Now the the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, then offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. You shall have the Levites stand before Aaron and before his sons so as to present them as a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the sons of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. So the Levites then, we see here, were to be set apart for the Lord's use. The, the, Lord, a, they, the Levites shall be mine, is what the Lord at the end of it all says. They were, they, each person, they sense my thought that they belonged to themselves, but here through this consecration, they would be set apart for the Lord's use himself. This is an interesting kind of ritual that takes place here. We first of all see the mention uh, that there would be two uh, bowls that were to be sacrificed, that would be set aside. One as a burnt offering, the other as a sin offering. We see that in, the, in, um, uh, in the verse 8. Then, but as uh, this, the, in this consecration of Levites, it would involve the whole congregation. They would have to be called together in verse 9. And the congregation then were then told to, in verse 10, to, as they brought the Levites forward, the, the congregation gathered, and they were to lay their hands on the Levites as they come to the tent of meeting. And uh, then... Aaron was then to present the Levites as a wave offering. Wave offering was basically, uh, in the instructions in Exodus Leviticus, uh, Levitical law, they, they basically waved some parts of the animal as a part of the, just part of the, part of the offering, uh, as a sacrifice to the Lord. But instead here, the Levites don't get killed, and are, they're not literally weighed before the Lord, because, you know, it's people. But instead of killing them, the Levites, uh, they were in a sense, uh, uh, symbolically uh, or ritually weighed before the Lord in some way. And what this pictured was that the Levites, because of the very fact that the, the congregation had laid their hands on the Levites, they pictured that these Levites were the offering of the congregation. They were the sacrifice to the Lord from the congregation. But instead of having the, Kilites, the, Kil- the Levites killed like animals, uh, in sacrifice, the Levites, you note then, and the, as the ritual continues, in turn, they then lay their hands, they just had their hands laid on, but now they lay their hands on the bulls, verse 12. One's going to be offered, they're both going to be killed and sacrificed, one as a sin offering, and one as a burnt offering. We looked at those, and uh, we mentioned those phrases uh, different times. The bulls then were the sacrifices that took the place of the Levites, who had been were given to the Lord as in place of the congregation of Israel. The Levites are then once again presented as a wave offering to the Lord. And in this way, the Levites were consecrated to the service of the Lord. And that's why the Lord says, the Levites shall be mine. As those who have been atoned for, whose lives, whose, they should have, in a sense, they, they, their, their lives belong to the Lord, but they, instead of being sacrificed by being atoned by the bulls, the Levites were now devoted to living their lives as a sacrifice for the Lord. 
because of the mercy that they received by the sacrifice of bulls, they now were to live their lives as a sacrifice to the Lord. Romans 12.1. Sounds familiar. Thirdly, we note the significance of the Levites in verses 15 and 19. Then after all, then... Um, after that, the Levites may go in to serve the tent of meeting, but you shall cleanse them and present them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for myself and said of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. For every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine, among the men and among the animals. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them for myself. But I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons from among the sons of Israel to perform the service of the sons of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel so that there will be no plague among the sons of Israel by their coming near to the sanctuary. So the Levites are, are, cleansed, are, are cleansed to serve the Lord, are consecrated to serve the Lord because... And we learn here that they have been taken to be substitutes for Israel, but particularly, specifically, they are taken to be substitutes for the firstborn sons of Israel. We had studied this back in Numbers chapter 3 when we looked, when we studied that. You recall that in the 10th and final plague in Egypt, every firstborn uh, in the land of Egypt was, was going to be killed by the angel of death. But the Lord had provided a way of salvation for every Israelite, every firstborn Israelite, from being killed through the application of the sacrifice of a lamb, a one-year-old lamb, and whose blood would then be applied on the doorposts of each home. And so in that way, the, when the angel saw the, the blood on the doorpost, he passed over those firstborn sons of Israel. And instead of dying, they lived. And because he saved them, the firstborn sons of Israel technically belonged to the Lord. But instead of taking every firstborn son, we learn that he took instead the whole tribe of Levi, one for one, in place of them, in place of the firstborn sons. And their service, these, the Levites' service as cleansed and consecrated servants on behalf of the sons of Israel, uh, served a purpose. It served a purpose of, as it says, so that there will be, it would protect them from God's wrath. They owed their life to the Lord, and if they did not owe the Lord, and if God dwelt among them, they would all, because of sin, they would all be, experience the plague or God's really, the judgment of God's wrath upon them. They would all die. See, no one can have holy God dwell in their midst and live. But because of this, the Levites surrounding the tabernacle where God's presence dwelt, because of their, their role as substitutes, sacrifices to the Lord, they, the wording here is used that they atone in a sense, make atonement for, the, for, the, for Israel, in fact. They're, the priests offer atonement. The Levites are in atonement. There's a lot of, a lot of just imagery here, and just all pointers to Jesus. But, so their life devotion then in assisting Aaron and his sons and the servants was a, was a reminder to Israel that they belong to the Lord, that those Levites belong to every firstborn son. And why just the firstborn sons? Well, the firstborn sons represented the, the leaders of the family. They would be the leaders of the families. They would be the heads of the households. They would take on, they would continue on the generations. And that's their, kind of the, their, their role as firstborn sons. 
Fourthly, we note then uh, one, uh, another thing, and that is the obedience uh, of the Levites, or even obedience surrounding the Levites. Verse 20 through 22. Thus Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel to the Levites. Thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the sons of Israel to the Levites. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so the sons of Israel did to them. The Levites, too, purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. Aaron also made atonement for them to cleanse them. Then after the Levites went in to perform their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and before his sons, just as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. These verses summarize Israel's response to the Lord, uh, to the Lord's instructions. All that God instructed regarding the Levites, Moses... Aaron, all the congregation, and the Levites did. The Levites are particularly noted that they themselves particularly obeyed, ritually cleansing themselves and allowing themselves to be consecrated by Aaron. And so they then began their, their service in the tent of meeting, just as the Lord had commanded. Think about it. The Levites uh, didn't volunteer for this task. They were simply chosen for the task. They didn't ask for the task. They didn't decide on their own to do it. But God had chosen to the task. And they responded in the only way God's people ought to respond when God gives you and chooses you for a task. Hmm, let me think about it. Let me check my calendar. Oh, I, I don't know. I've got a lot of other responsibilities. No. Nope. They did it. Because God had chosen for the, for the task. That's a real powerful example for all of Israel and for all the people of God today that when God gives us a task to serve him with the gifts that he has given us in this local church, to, to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to serve him in our community as lights to the world, hopefully this task that he's given to us will be something that we also have said in our hearts, yes, Lord, we will do it. We will do it. We'll respond with obedience. Finally, a fifth and final observation of the Levites here in the instruction of Levites is regards the retirement of the Levites, verses 23 through 26. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is what applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upward. They shall enter to perform service in the work of the tent of meeting, but at the age of 50 years, they shall retire from service in the work and not work anymore. They may, however, assist their brothers in the tent of meeting to keep an obligation but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall deal with the Levites concerning their obligations. <laughs> I remember when I was a young Christian, it just so weird. Uh, I'd heard someone say, um, there's no such thing as retirement, you know, or there's no such thing as retirement. But as, as I look at this, I'm like, well, there's retirement, okay, in the Bible. It says right here. Okay, it's clearly retirement. So it's, it's, but I know what that person meant when they told me is that basically no matter what age you are in life, you, you don't stop living for the Lord. You don't stop serving the Lord through our worship. And I get that. But there is a, there's an aspect of retiring from work uh, that is found in the Bible. We see it in, in, here, in this passage. But the Lord instructs, the, instructs Israel, the Levites, regard, as, um, as they're entered to perform the work of the meeting, that the, these Levites need to be age 25 and up. And this stands out when you remember what was written in Numbers chapter 4. Because Numbers chapter 4, when the Levites were numbered to do the work of the, in, the in the tabernacle, the, the Levites were counted from 30 years old and up. So there's a discrepancy here of five years. 
The difference is variously explained by different commentators because it's not explained really in the text at all. But if you think about what Numbers 4 involves, it involved the work of carrying the holy objects. They were to carry the holy objects of Israel. And it would, so, uh, it would seem that that was, a very, that was among the things that the Israelites did. That was one of the things, the main thing really, at least while they were wandering. The but eventually, when the temple was built, it would cease to be uh, the major task. Uh, they would be involved in the guarding and the assisting of the, of the, uh, of the priests. And so it would seem that for these, uh, that uh, Numbers 4 involves the, those who could carry it, and Numbers and the, and 25 and up here involves those who would actually serve as Levites in the tabernacle. It would seem that for the first five years of Levite service, they were not allowed to carry the holy objects. Instead, they, they would be watching and observing and, and listening and learning from the older Levites. At age 30 is when they, they, then the moment that they could start carrying the, actually the holy objects themselves. Because this, and this was important. You don't want some immature person. You don't want some, the new guy, you know. <laughs> because the new guys, just if you go to any place, you go to Starbucks. I was at Starbucks the other day. Uh, I could tell the line was just so long, moving super slowly. Why? Because the guy at the cashier was, it was their first day. It was the newbie. And that's how they trained it. But when it comes to the training to carry the holy objects of God, you don't put the newbie there. You put the experienced people there. The, most, the ones who are the most mature there. And that's kind of just kind of neat. Anyways, this was uh, uh, improper handling of the holy objects would lead to death. So the upper age limit of Levites, we find also this text. Like Numbers 4, it's also set at 50. Uh, 50. That's, uh, that'd be great, huh, if our retirement age was 50 years old. But that's not here what it is in, in our country today. It's 67, I believe, now. Um, but the Levites, at 50 and up, would retire from the work. They wouldn't work anymore. And, and, uh, however, it doesn't say that they stop completely work. They, would, they may continue to assist in the work uh, of the Levites. Presumably to, to give counsel um, uh, to the, the, the working Levites. But they would no longer do the, the heavy lifting that was involved in the carrying of the holy objects. And so here we see then a, a pattern. Even as, even as the description of the retirement of the Levites we find here, we see a pattern here of the Levite service. Uh, a pattern that uh, serves well even in all that we do for the Lord. In the early years, there is there's going, uh, as we begin to serve the Lord, there is, there's a training aspect, an observing aspect, a, a watching and learning of the work. In the prime years, that's when we do the heavy work. That's where we work independently, where we could uh, uh, be given a task and fulfill it carefully and with, without error. And then in the, la- the later, ret- in the latter retirement years, there is then no, maybe no longer heavy lifting, but the, the assisting, the providing counsel, um, coming co- alongside as a contractor for a little bit, perhaps. It's a sound pattern for all areas of service in Christ's church. So if you're young, you should be in, and, uh, in, the, in the faith or even young in age, you should be observing and learning how to do the work. When you see older saints doing the work, you say, well, okay, I'll just let them do the work. I'm just going to go and play my games and hang out with my friends. No, you should be observing. You should be watching Learning, I love it right now. One of my kids just whatever I do in the house, whenever I do repair, the guy just always wants to watch me. He was, whatever I'm doing, he wants to watch what I'm doing. He wants to learn from me. Whatever it is, he wants to ask me about it. He's, and I didn't even have to tell him that. He just naturally wants to do that. Uh, most most kids don't naturally want to do that. You know, they're like, "Oh, what are you doing? Oh, you're working? Okay." You know, that's. <laughs> 
But it's just neat. That's what we should do. Younger believers, younger Christians, watch and observe, learn to do the work. Of course, if we're in the middle of our year, in the prime of our Christian lives, we should now be doing the work, the bulk of the work, together. If we're in the prime of our life, we shouldn't be kicking back and say, well, I'm going to let others do it. I'm going to let the, the older saints do it. I'm going to you know, let the young ones do it. No, we need to be doing the heavy lifting of the church. And then, of course, if we're older, if we're older saints, then you may, you may have already stopped doing the heavy lifting. But our, our responsibility at that age is to, is to start is preparing and passing on our tasks to others. You can still assist, but our focus in, the, in our latter part of your should be passing it on. There should be someone alongside. If, you're, if you know, you think you could, you're, if you're, you're thinking about dying anytime soon, possibly, you should be thinking about, who am I replacing this? Don't just wait to die and then wait, oh, Pastor Henry will find somebody. I'm not going to find anybody. I, I, was, I don't know who can do that. We all, if we're older saints, let's be thinking about, who am I discipling to take over this work? Who am I training? That's why we, this is really called making, this is disciple making. It's the process of making disciples. There's coming a time, brothers and sisters, and I, and I am in that prime of life, and I'm already thinking that I'm going to be, as a getting into the later parts of my life, there's coming, a, there's coming a time, whether of our own choosing or sometimes inevitably not, we can no longer do the work. It's going to come, and it is coming. And unless we faithfully disciple others to do it, then no one will be ready when the Lord takes us. Imagine that the first generation of Israel did all the work. They decided to do all the work but, and then, and in the tabernacle, but they never bothered to teach the next generation what to do. And so when they all died off in the desert, what would the second generation do? They're like, we don't know what to do. The worship of the Lord will fall apart. And so a question for us, what are we doing in preparing the next generation for the worship and service of the Lord? Numbers is a book about generations, one generation passing, the underwear generation coming along. It's a reminder for us as a church. I was just telling somebody, many of the Bible churches that are in our country, oh, you have a brother back in the back. I saw a Bible church, they all began in the 30s, 40s, 50s. And most of them, if you go to a Bible church today, many of them are populated with older saints. And sadly, many of them are dying because they failed along the way to train up and disciple another generation to take over their place. Perhaps by the blessing of the Lord, they planted and they, and they sent some people off. But a lot of times, they just simply failed. Thank the Lord. I look around this room. There's, there are older saints who have been part of this beginning of this church, but there's a lot of you younger saints. Good job, older saints. Keep it up. Keep it up. But remember, younger saints, you too will have to do this. Moving on. Uh, oh, that's, that's all five. That's, these lessons, uh, these, these are the instructions regarding the Levites. And they were designed to, to teach Israel, to be example to Israel of this kind of service that they were to offer up to the Lord. As we conclude, let me just wrap it up. The instruction of the lampstand and Levites remind Israel, reminded Israel of their relationship with the Lord. That the Israelites belonged to the Lord and were blessed to the Lord. And that evidence was manif- the, the evidence was the manifestation of God's dwelling in their midst through the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. Leading them where, whenever they needed leading and speaking to them through Moses. And that was a blessing for God spoke to them as we saw at the end of chapter 7. The first generation of Israelites out of Egypt 
They all saw this and experienced this reality with their own eyes and with their own ears and with their own their lives. They saw it as a reality that God was in their midst. God shined light upon them. God blessed them. God and they belonged, Lord. And they, God was in their midst, but they didn't die. And though they saw this, though they had these truths, and they 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 were faithful to begin with, as we read here. But as we're going to move along in numbers, especially when we start getting numbers chapter eleven. We're going to see that quickly, these who began faithfully become faithless in short time. Their their choices would serve as a warning to the second generation, to the next generation, and every future generation of the people of God. You can start off well, and that's good, and that's ought to be, but what counts is how you finish, is the faith. That, continue, that begins and continues and ends. Faith from beginning to end. The instruction of the lampstand reminds God's people today that the Lord continues to shine his light upon us in Christ. The instruction of the Levites reminds God's people today that because he saved us, therefore we belong to him to live and serve, our lives for, uh, serve with our lives to him. And just as we've reminded in the book of Hebrews, uh, of this reality. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, cleansed from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Let us be, because the Lord is faithful and we are God's, and, and we who are God's people, let us respond in faithfulness to the Lord. As we remember his presence in our life, his blessing upon our life, he will not forsake it. He does not stop. And we are, need to be faithful, not just at the beginning, not just in the middle, but all the way through the end. All the way through the end. And that's why, as we conclude, we wrap back to our beginning on this All Hallows Eve and tomorrow on All Hallows Day. Let's take a few moments to remember. Remember the faithful the faithful saints who came before us set the example for us to follow. They were not perfect, but they began in faith, they continued in faith, and they finished in faith. And that is example, their example continues for us today. Let's follow after them as they follow after the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, so much for uh, this time and your word, and we thank you for the reminders, these instructions, though, uh, in a sense, uh, unfamiliar to us, uh, this lampstand and, and the Levites, not, in our, not everyday things in our world today, but we thank you for what they point to and how they remind us of you and how they remind us of Jesus. And we pray that, uh, that as... as uh, as those who have been saved, uh, blessed by your light, that we would live our lives as an offering throughout our lives, that, what we, that this relationship that we have with you that was begun in faith in Christ would continue and would com- be completed in faith until the day of Christ Jesus, until you take us home. Lord, we thank you, Father, for our great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.